You're listening to the Catholic Woman Podcast. If you're a Catholic woman desiring to live by God's standards and not society's expectations, then this podcast is for you. Each week, we bring you actionable tools to live out your vocation confidently while empowering you to know the truths and teachings of the Catholic faith. Whether you need advice, encouragement, or connection, you are in the right place. So if you're ready to dive in and become the woman God created you to be, then get ready because here is your host, Marie Hansen. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Woman Podcast. I am so excited because today we have Lauren DeWitt joining us. Lauren is a Catholic convert, wife, and a mother of three. After practicing law for seven years, she now enjoys being a full-time homemaker and sharing with others how to live a life of contemplation and action. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marie. I am so happy to be here. Yes, I am so excited. So um, Lauren and I have chatted before. When I was working with a Catholic marriage group, we had her come in and do a talk about gender roles. And as soon as I started this podcast, I was like, we need to have her come back and talk about it because it was so, so good. So um, before she jumps into that, I guess, Lauren, do you just want to like introduce yourself a little bit for those who maybe don't know you? Yeah, sure. So my name is Lauren. I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I grew up Southern Baptist. My dad was actually a Baptist minister, um, and I converted to Catholicism in 2017. And then my husband converted in 2020, and my parents actually ended up converting like last week. They came into the church on Friday. So um, my whole family has been on this just like incredible journey into Catholicism, and that has completely shaped the way I see everything. Um, Falling in love with Jesus, like radically falling in love with Jesus in the fullness of the truth that the Catholic Church has, has just changed every detail of my life. And so one of the reasons I'm so passionate about talking about traditional gender roles and upholding what um, the church teaches about femininity over secular feminism is because this has been a journey that I have been on Personally, you know, when I, before my conversion, I was pretty thoroughly secular. I hadn't practiced um, any kind of, any aspect of my faith in several years. And so I had really bought into this, you know, idea that I needed to have this high power career. I needed to be able to support myself. I could never rely on a man because men were inherently unreliable And even if you did find a good man, like you just, you never knew what could happen. Um, I had no concept of a sacramental view of marriage. So, you know, it was, you know, hopefully you entered into it with like madly in love and then the, you know, balancing contractual obligations of building a life together would sustain it. So, (laughs) so by becoming Catholic and diving into this 2000 years plus um, cause all of this of course has its roots in Jewish tradition from thousands of years before that it's just completely transformed everything. It's transformed my marriage, the way I parent, the way I'm a mother, I have three children, um, my work, I was an attorney, you know, full time, uh, when we first got married and was, you know, on partnership track. And the year before I was up for partner, I was like, I'm staying home. <laughs> So wow, yeah. away from all of that. And I, I've never been happier. My husband and I were just talking the other day and I was like, I'm trying to think of something that, you know, somebody could pay me to do other than what I do now. And I was like, there is no job, not no hobby, nothing and no amount of money that could ever replace where I am right now, just being a wife and a mom. Mm, <laughs> so that's so beautiful. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, I think so many women, we are um, fed this secular, you know, the secular um, narrative that we have to be self-supporting and men are never reliable. And it sounds like, it sounds great. It sounds like women's empowerment from the outside, but when you truly look at it, it's not. So I'm just so excited to have you dive into, you know, all of this today. Um, And I will interject with questions along the way, but please um, go ahead and just like dive on in because I am so ready to hear about this. Sure. So, you know, when I first ever bring up the idea of traditional gender roles, um, most people have a very specific mental image that comes up. And that, of course, is the 
stereotypical 1950s housewife. You know, they think of you know, June Cleaver or the Mad Men TV series and these women that are just posh and polished and they cook and they clean and they just wait at home for their husbands to get home and their husbands wear these three-piece suits and work these power jobs and, um, you know, generally are depicted as treating their secretaries and wives just as sex objects or just very utilitarian. Um, and so it's no surprise that over time that's become a very negative stereotype. And it's been easy in a way to convince society at large that this idea of traditional gender roles is automatically oppressive to women. And, um, you know, we mentioned secular feminism, this view, they kind of took it and run with, ran with it um, when first, well, second wave um, feminism was really reaching its height. And so, of course, you've got famous femi- feminist, I'm sorry, <laughs> Betty Friedan, there's a lot of Fs there, <laughs> in her book, The Feminine Mystique, and then others like Gloria Steinem, Jerrine Greer, Helen Gurley Brown, Kate Millett, all of these women pushed this stereotype of traditional gender roles being automatically oppressive to women into the culture in a very systematic, organized way. And they did this by mass media, Um, magazines, radio shows, um, advertisements. And all of this is really well attested by former Cosme writer Sue Ellen Browder. She has several books on the topic, and she really goes into very specific detail about how this was not an accidental thing that this view got so big in our culture. It was, it was planned, it was pushed. And, um, you know, Carrie Gress has an awesome book on this, the the anti-Mary exposed, she goes into this as well. So, you know, the fix proposed by the feminist movement was basically to empower women to define themselves. And apart from anything, apart from, you know, traditional gender roles, apart from your relationships, apart from your education, your background, even eventually your biology. And because so much of what makes it women and women different is inherent in our biology, that's why things like birth control got so heavily pushed. And we've seen this just go completely out of control now to where, you know, 70 years after the introduction of the pill, we now no longer know what the words man or woman mean, or, you know, we have politicians yep. who are unwilling to define those. Yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, we it's fluid. Everything is fluid. It depends on what you want to do and any day of the week, and it can change and you're not tied down to anything. So, you know, this idea has trickled down into mainstream society. And the idea was that, you know, if you can define yourself completely on your own terms, you'll be happy. But all of the data we have um, suggest that even it just assume for the moment that the feminists were right. Okay, maybe this traditional gender role thing was um, not great for women. Even if that was true, these fixes to find yourself undefined apart from anything have only deepened all of the wounds. Divorce rates are much higher now than they were historically. In the 1960s, when this movement was getting started, the divorce rate was about 9.2 for every 1,000 couples. But today, and this is data from like 2019, so I would imagine it's higher post-pandemic, it's 15 for every 1,000 couples. So yeah, 9.2 to 15. And this divorce rate actually gets exponentially bigger when you account for the drastic drop in marriage rates over time. So in 1960, there were 80 newly married people per 1,000 unmarried persons. Today, that's 32.2 per 1,000. And it's continuing to drop because data we have, the most recent I was able to find from 2017 shows that the U.S. rate marriage rate is down 23% just in the last decade. Wow. Um, Yeah. So there, I mean, there's tons of factors at play, of course, in these changing divorce rates. Mm -hmm. But what makes it really interesting to me is that you also look at what um, psychologists and statisticians call the happiness metric. And so what's gotten really popular over time is to just ask Americans, you know, how happy are you? How happy do you rate your life? And Americans are now ranking the unhappiest they have ever been in history. 
(laughs) So, you know, assuming that things were so terrible back in the 50s when we had these, you know, traditional gender roles were kind of the norm, we are certainly not anywhere near as happy as we apparently were even then. Right. That's crazy. Right. So, you know, the other thing to remember is this was pushed as such a strategic narrative, but when you go back and try to find data on these claims that women were so oppressed and unhappy, it's really hard to find the data. And that, you know, that maybe because just playing devil's advocate, that maybe these statistics from 70 years ago just either weren't being measured or being taken as widely. But I have struggled to find any sort of empirical data that shows American women um, were unhappy the way these cosmopolitan writers painted them to be. Hmm. And the interesting thing is, is you look at all of the women, almost every single leader in the feminist movement had a personal ax to grind against traditional gender roles. And so what I mean by that is you look at them, all of them for the most part come from broken homes, homes where the mother was very cold or distant. There were a lot Mm. of mom issues. Um, There may have been issues with emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, a lot of home of origin issues. And so without having any empirical data to back up these women's claims, it becomes very easy to see that it, it, they kind of extrapolated their own personal experiences and woundedness onto society as a whole. And I think it becomes really easy for people to buy into this victim narrative, right? It's so much easier to say, well, I'm unhappy because of someone else's fault. It's because I'm being oppressed. It's because I've been given a raw deal than to look at it and say, hey, maybe I came from a really wounded family life, but that doesn't have to define what my life looks like going forward. Or maybe I haven't made great choices, choices that are inherent of my own inherent dignity. And maybe that's why I'm so unhappy. And so you've got this, this perfect storm Um, that has really led to where we are today, where fewer and fewer people are getting married. If you do get married, the statistics are pretty dire. And um, we've just got these complete and uh, endless pushes to get women in the workforce and to get your children into institutionalized daycare and schools. So, you know, if things were bad in the 50s, <laughs> I don't have a great optimism for what they're going to look like 10 years from now. <laughs> that is so true. Right. So, you know, one of the other things that happens when I talk about traditional gender roles is um, aside from this stereotype, people will really try to pen me down sometimes and say, you know, well, does that mean that my husband never has to wash a dish or never has to look after his children. And you'll see some people um, that I I would consider to be fundamentalists that do try to take that view. Hmm. That is not a view the church has ever taught. Um, Traditional gender roles do not ever mean that one person stops to get, gets to stop being a parent or a spouse. So your spousal duties, your duties as a mother and father are always going to be primary But what traditional gender roles do mean is that there are aspects of your wifedom, your motherhood, or conversely, your fatherhood and your your being a husband that are unique to you because of your gender. And so at its its very core, traditional gender roles are less about specific tasks and more about understanding what it inherently means to be a man or a woman. Interesting. Interesting. Right. And so as Catholics, we've got such beautiful teachings on this. And this is, you know, as old as Adam and Eve. And it's been expounded upon over the centuries to where we have this beautiful teaching from John Paul II on theology of the body. And so, you know, we are really so well poised to dive into what it really means to be a woman of God. And when we do that, we see that Women are created to receive. And when you look at everything through the lens of reception, it can totally change your 
point of view on how you live out all of your tasks. So sometimes describing woman's essence as being to receive sounds like something kind of negative, like it's something passive. But being receptive is a very active thing. Um, Receiving means taking something that is given to you and turning it into something more. So it's, it's it's a very important role. And it's something that, you know, we need to spend a lot of time looking at in our own lives, both as women overall, you know, for all women, but specifically in our own lives, what does it mean for me to receive in whatever field or state of life that God has me in right now? And when we do that, we can see that very often um, the unique mission field and place where we are called to receive as women is in our own homes. And so, you know, that that's easy to talk about in terms of marriage. So I'm married. I'm assuming most of your listeners are probably married or discerning the vocation of marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm obviously, you know, I get some people that say sometimes like, well, you've forgotten about religious sisters. No, I haven't forgotten about them. <laughs> they were, but we're going to keep our conversation towards those who have discerned the married vocation. So if you've discerned marriage, then your primary vocation as the woman is going to be in your home. Why women? Why women in the home and not the men? Aren't we equal? The gospel says that we are created equally, that we are created, you know, in Christ, there's neither man nor woman, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. But that doesn't mean that equality means the same. It's not about equity of outcome. It's about um, equal dignity. And like I said earlier, dignity, um, you know, we were created differently. You go back and read Genesis 2. Adam and Eve were created as male and female. They weren't created as some generic mix where, you know, they could pick and choose. And significantly, Adam was taken, or Eve, I'm sorry, was taken from Adam's side. She wasn't taken from his head to rule over him. She wasn't taken from his foot to be trampled on by him, but she was taken from his side to be co-equal with him and under his arm next to his heart. So, not just equal, but under his protection, under his shelter, under his mission. And that's what it means. It, it means that we have these complementarity of missions. And our mission is always, of course, to reflect God and the Trinity, which is so beautifully shown in marriage. But these are going to be lived out in different spheres. So the woman's going to live out her mission primarily in the home. And men are going to live out their mission um, in a more external fashion. Now, sometimes when I talk about this, people, you know, we we talked earlier about how, you know, secular feminism has gotten so broad, even in very traditional Catholic circles, though, I find that this secular feminism has crept in, even when we're trying to guard against it, it's just so insidious. And so a lot of times when I talk about women having their primary mission field as the home, people have this idea that that is somehow of lesser importance. Yes. And it's really, you know, it's easy to see how someone might come to that conclusion because there's no statistics by which you can measure homemaking, right? Like if you're in in the field, if you're in a career, I can tell how well I'm doing because I'll I'll know what salary I'm getting. I'll know how many degrees I have. Um, I'll be able to measure, you know, whether people are buying my product or whether clients are happy. But when you're in the home, you know, there is no nurturing statistic. I can't tell, you know, how many units of love have I given my <laughs> children today? Right. And so we've gotten so data obsessed that we've reduced all meaningful human activity to the mode of efficiency and production. And so we've really just turned ourselves into these economic units. And you've gotten to this place where in society, the home is no longer the heart. It's there to serve the economy. It's there to create um, jobs, to serve the greater good, to add numbers to the GDP, that sort of thing. And that's completely backwards. Um, and when we, if we can't get ourselves, especially as women, out of this efficiency and data-driven mindset, 
it's going to be really hard to live out our roles of homemaker. Because like I said, the work of homemaker is all about nurture and intimacy. And you just, you can't measure that. Yeah. And this creeps in in so many ways. You know, I, um, it's something I continue to struggle with. I, you know, I said I practice law for seven years. Everything in law, every hour is recorded. Um, And I, you know, there's very complex systems where you know how much your hour is worth, how much of that is being billed to the client. And all of that translates directly into how much profit that you end up bringing in. When I started staying home, I really struggled. And I think this is not uncommon, um, but I felt like I needed to show my husband what I was doing and I needed to have some sort of like visible, verifiable data-driven effort. So I'd be like, you know, I baked all of these things today or look how I reorganized the laundry room. And I, and I, (laughs) I wore myself out the first year I stayed home because I was doing all of these things to try to like prove my worth. Yeah. Um, And I realized that was still that secular mindset that was creeping into something, even though I had come such a long way and had, you know, more rightly ordered my marriage and my motherhood is this was still something that kept creeping in. <laughs> yeah. That, it's hard to escape. It really is. Especially even in Catholic circles, people, it's just like a mindset that we don't even realize we have. And we don't even realize it's not biblical. Right. It's not biblical. And so, you know, like we were talking earlier, Genesis 2, we were created to receive. To receive, you can't be running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You just right. can't. You have to develop stillness. And, you know, as as a mother, I understand that it's not going to be physical stillness. You're always going to be running around chasing after people, even if you don't have children yet. Um, I don't necessarily mean physical stillness. I mean stillness of heart. I mean being in a place of internal peace that is totally independent of your external circumstances so that you can really hear God's voice in your day-to-day. And when you do that, when you're able to receive Um, you can give back so much more to your husband and your children. And all of this is reflected in our biology too. So for those of us who are more, you know, concrete, men are not capable of receiving in the same way as women, you know, um, and they're not capable of the same kind of nurturing. Women are capable of receiving and nourishing life itself. And we keep that in us for nine months Um, And we know that we're pregnant before anybody else does, even our husbands, the people who are closest to us. And then once our children are born, we have this intimate knowledge and intuition of our children's needs that even our own husbands cannot readily sense usually, regardless of how involved they are with the child care. Um, And science is actually catching up with this. Um, You know, we always have talked a lot about motherly intuition that recently there's been so much more data coming out about how critical the development of the mature adult person depends on the foundations laid in early childhood. And science shows that this development begins in the womb, you know, and we know that the health and stress levels of the mother, the food she eats, the circumstances surrounding her labor and delivery, all of those have a huge impact on the child's mental, physical, and emotional development. And then Following birth up through the first six years, extensive research has shown how critical these these years are for setting the entire trajectory of the child for the rest of their lives. It's in those first six years that their brains are developing at the greatest rate. They're learning language. They're learning how to interact with others. They're learning basic emotional responses. And all of this is necessary to develop confidence and self-esteem. And what's so interesting here is, of course, the father needs to be really involved But science also shows that women are, generally speaking, better at expressing and interpreting emotions. And we we tend to show more emotions on our face. And we tend Mm -hmm. to talk more. We talk a lot more than men. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's science, guys. That's not just me throwing out a stereotype. (laughs) But when you think about that and these, these first six years of a child's life being so critical, you see that the role of the mother is irreplaceable. The person they're going to learn how to um, manage their emotions and express them, it's going to be a lot more visible from their moms. In this language development, they're going to be talking so much more with their mothers. And so, you know, mothers are uniquely positioned um, to nurture and raise up this child to set it on this 
firm foundation for the trajectory of its rest of its life in a way that nobody else can. And so if the mother is in this unique position, then why would she be anywhere else? If you have children, why would you be anywhere else? Yeah. You know, that's so true. Um, and there are times, you know, I'm not saying that if you're not staying full home, home full time with your children, that, you know, your, their trajectory is off course, but everything that we do outside of the home has to serve what happens inside the home. And so we just have to be so cognizant of that, especially when our children are in their younger years, but even going on, um, you know, into later lives. And even if you don't have children, you need to make sure that your home, um, is the source and the center of everything else that goes on around it. Yes. Okay. So really quick question fast. So what about, I know you said you just because you, if you're not home, that doesn't mean they're necessarily on, um, you know, like on a worse track. So what about those mothers who have to work to contribute to the family financially um, just to make ends meet? Absolutely. So um, one part of my story I did not mention, I've actually been like every iteration of motherhood. I was a single mom actually for the first two and a half years of my daughter's life. Um, So I had to work. I had no choice. And um, then when my husband and I got married, I was the primary breadwinner for probably two years because he was in his residency Um, and they, you know, which is essentially still medical school. So he Mm -hmm. wasn't getting paid much at all. And um, it wasn't until, you know, and then we had student loans. I had law school. He had med school loans on top of cars and then daycare. And so all these bills were piling up. So we had to work really hard to get to a place where financially I could stay home. Mm -hmm. So I totally get that. And especially when we're in a time in the economy where inflation is just out of control, families are going to have to make different and creative choices. So what I would say is, first of all, be creative. Second of all, well, maybe I should reverse this. First of all, be very clear about your goals. Um, <laughs> the family has to be the goal. Our vocation is first being a wife, second being a mother. And so everything else has to come after that. And that includes finances. So, um, you know, we, we're so blessed in America. Um, we have so much more than the vast majority of the rest of the world. And when we let this secular mindset, again, of data and efficiency creep in, it can be really easy to start thinking we need things that aren't really necessary. And so if you are in a position um, where you're having trouble, you know, balancing and providing for your family, like consider what you really need. Like, Mm -hmm. do you need both cars? Do you need to send your child to private school? Do you need to have a cell phone with um, all these this data capability, or can you go back to a um, a dumb phone? Right, <laughs> or, yeah. you know. And I, you know, I it's I'm not saying that's easy, but it it really all goes back to priorities and yep. uh, just also keeping in mind how transitory all of these stages of life are. We only have our children for 18 years, and in those 18 years the first six are so critical. So if you step back and realize, okay, this is not the rest of my life. We're not going to be eating, you know, just beans and rice for the next 60 years. Right. <laughs> this right. is a phase and we're going to get through it. And it's one day at a time, one moment at a time. And we're just going to make the best decisions that we can based on the information we have and in prayerful um, discernment for this moment. And, you know, that may mean you have to take a side job sometimes too, or it may mean Mm -hmm. that you need to do something from your home. But as long as you are prayerfully discerning that and keeping in mind your primary vocations, um, and then just keeping that overall view of the timeline, like nothing that you do today is forever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that can really help with your discernment process, I think. Mm, that's so good. Keeping it all in perspective. I like that. Yeah. So let's see, where were we? Authentic masculinity and femininity. So again, we go back to this question when we are 
you know, if mothers are uniquely positioned to be in the home, then sometimes we get bogged down in the fact that this is different from men and why not men? Why not us? Or why, why not men? Why does it have to be the women? And again, it goes back to this idea that we have to get away from the notion that equality between the sexes is about outcomes. So true equality is rooted in our mutual but distinct identities fashioned in God's image. And when we make equality between men and women about outcomes and opportunities rather than our identity as a man or a woman, equality becomes about power. And power always shows itself in seeking to dominate rather than to serve. And that's truly animalistic. That's, you know, um, it's the the strong out survive the weak. And, and honestly, yeah. it's demonic. I mean, that's what that's what Satan said, non-servium, I will not serve. Yep. And so we have to just reset our mindsets to be like, okay, relationships between men and women in society at large and especially within the marriage is not about power. It's about reflecting God who is love. And we know from Catholic tradition, you know, there is no greater mirror of the life of the Trinity than the family. You know, you've got the the husband representing God, the father sending forth his love to be received by um, the mother. And then it spirates the way we use in theological terms to create this whole new person. And so it's just this beautiful image of the Trinity, of God's relationship to the church as Jesus is the bridegroom. And so when we embrace these roles, we better reflect who God is. John Paul II has this great quote that I love. He says, the creation of woman is marked from the outset by a principle of help a help which is not one-sided, but mutual. When the book of Genesis speaks of help, it's not referring merely to acting, but also to being. Womanhood and manhood are complementary. It's only through the duality of the masculine and the feminine that the human finds full realization. And so when you take that context and you look at it, you see that embracing true masculinity or true femininity is the way we become truly human. Mm, that's so beautiful yeah it's just it's incredible and so when we when we erase what it means to be a woman and when we try to say no equality is about equality of opportunities and outcomes it's about a power balance or striking this balance of power between men and women we're erasing truth we're erasing fundamental aspects of who god is and who we are meant to reflect through our being and I think you see so much of that today in so much confusion about what marriage should look like, about what motherhood should look like, about what being a man or a woman should look like. And, um, you know, again, that sort of confusion and division is diabolical. Yep. So what, you know, what should motherhood, what should womanhood, what should being a wife look like if Traditional gender roles are not necessarily about who washes the dishes or who takes out the trash. Um, What does it look like? And I would say the best example we have of this is the marriage of Mary and Joseph. We know there's only a handful of events from scripture that describe the Holy Family. We know the Annunciation, Mary's, of course, that we just celebrated, and then Joseph's Annunciation. We know about the Visitation. We don't know for sure whether Joseph went with her or not. But given prevailing cultural traditions of that day and the need for security, it's probable that Joseph actually went with Mary to Judah. Um, And then after the visitation, we hear about the Holy Family's trip to Bethlehem. And of course, that's where the birth of Jesus takes place, followed by all these amazing events with the shepherds, the magi, the circumcision, um, and then the flight to Egypt. And then we know after the flight to Egypt, Uh, They come back to Nazareth and then we don't hear anything else until we have the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. This is, that's it. We don't, like I said, in less than 60 seconds, basically the entirety of everything we know about the Holy Family. That's so true. (laughs) But even though we don't know a lot of details, um, we know so much about it through this, about what God wants our marriages and our womanhood to look like. Every event involving the Holy Family with the exception of the Annunciations, which occurred to both Mary and Joseph separately, we see Mary and Joseph acting together. We see Joseph and Mary together heading to Bethlehem 
probably together going to the visitation. Um, scripture tells us that the shepherds, when they finally arrived at the nativity, found Mary and Joseph together with the infant. The circumcision of Jewish was a Jewish ritual at which both parents would have had to be present. Again, at the presentation at the temple and the purification of Mary, scripture tells us that they, Mary and Joseph, took Jesus in accordance with the law of Moses. And then finally, when you get to this last event, we know the finding in the temple, it's Mary who speaks, but she speaks in the voice of both. She says, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. And so when you just ponder these very scant details, you it just highlights the complementarity between man and woman, between Mary and Joseph and between husband and wife and the way we have different jobs. You know, Joseph was a carpenter. He was in charge of protecting the family. Um, Mary stayed at home. She would have, you know, been in charge of putting together the meals and the homemaking, but they work together with the sole goal of serving their son, Jesus. You know, they, she says, mm-hmm. I've been looking, we have been looking for you with great anxiety. The shepherds found them together with the baby, Jesus. They did everything together and they did it in the presence of Christ himself. And so when you translate that to what our marriages and our home lives should look like, we should be trying to do everything together with our husbands while respecting our different roles. And everything there should be for the purpose of fostering a sense of Eucharistic adoration in the home, really. Um, We need to be like Mary and Joseph. We need to have this Eucharistic presence always before us, you know, if not physically, obviously, then spiritually. And we need to um, create homes that foster this atmosphere. So what... What does fostering that atmosphere look like? Um, You know, first, it varies from family to family. You know, sometimes, like we said earlier, you'll go through seasons where maybe something doesn't quite match your ideal situation. Maybe you have to work for some reason. Maybe, um, you know, you've got some situation where you're having to take on more of a head of household role than you would prefer. God works through all of that. He's never absent from any situation you find yourself in. And at the end of the day, your marriage is a sacrament, regardless of what secular society thinks that means something. It means that grace is there, not just on your wedding day, but every day. It means that God made you for each other with full knowledge of your respective strengths and weaknesses. So again, complementarity, it all goes back to complementarity. You and your husband are not just random people that happen to meet and fall in love. I'm not saying that there's some sort of like, destiny soulmate thing going on here. (laughs) Right, right. But your marriage is a capital S sacrament. And God knew when you joined yourselves together and in his presence, he knew your strengths and weaknesses. And he brought you together anyway. And he has this grace flowing. The grace of marriage um, flows between the spouses. Y'all are the ministers of grace to each other. And when you allow that to flow, when you embrace your complementarity, when you as a woman embrace your um, identity as a receiver and a nurturer, um, you become authentic men and women. You become truly human. And then that changes your entire family life. Mm, That's so beautiful. Yeah. So do you have any questions about like specifics or? Yeah. Okay. So kind of on the last thing you said, so what about women who aren't quite married yet or are married but don't have children, mm-hmm. how can they be that receiver and that nurturer when they don't have um, somebody else necessarily like direct marriage or like bloodline family to take care of? Right. Yeah. And so I think it is important to remember that um, it doesn't just mean your husband and children. It could mean, you know, anybody in your family um, being there, receiving, um, you know, the, the main identities of woman. Um, are daughter, wife, and mother, you know, daughter of God, daughter of your parents, 
wife, if not of a physical husband, then of Christ, and then mother, and if not as a physical mother, then a spiritual mother. And so John Paul II talks about this too. He talks about how, um, you know, the world needs the feminine genius. Um, The world needs this unique uh, view that women can bring to all aspects of society. So the workplace, um, your community in general, your hobbies, all of that. So if you're in a single period of life, um, finding ways to receive like in your workplace or in your church might mean um, just being very sensitive to the needs of those around you and finding ways to serve in little ways and to build up and to um, take a project and slow down with it in a way that maybe others can't. Um, You know, we talked earlier about how to receive, you really have to have this posture of um, being still. And so it's, a, it's sort of a meditative posture, right? So even in the workplace, taking something and realizing um, greater potential for it and really spending time slowly with it and savoring it and bringing that out. There's so many ways that your femininity can add to every aspect of life. Um, another thing that I think women particularly are really good at is um, uh, helping bring the spirit into the workplace and the world. You know, it was Mary that the Holy Spirit came to. She was in a position to physically conceive Christ. Um, no man was ever in the running for that role, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but all of us, every single woman was in the running for that role. We didn't, you know, we didn't make it. Right. Like <laughs> but that means that's still something we are called to do. So if you are sitting there in your law office, invite the spirit into that. Um, you know, one thing I used to do is like, okay, how can I write this, this brief or this letter or whatever for the glory of God? How can I do Mm -hmm. it? Even though it has nothing, you know, ostensibly to do with faith, how can I do this? So it glorifies him. That may mean like being very sensitive in your tone and emails and phone and just doing all these different little things to find ways to bring grace into the situation that you find yourself in and finding ways like Mary did to take something in and make it for God's glory. Um, when otherwise that might've been something completely secular that would have just gone to waste. Mm, That's so good. That's so true. Yeah. You, I mean, we can do it in every, every vocation. Mm -hmm. We have multiple vocations in our life and in every vocation we can do that. Um, Okay, another question that I often will get asked or pushed on is, well, what about those like effeminate men or those really masculine women who don't, I know we talked about how it's not so much the stereotype yeah. and it's living out, you know, how God created us to be, but how, um, I mean, how do you talk to those people who really feel like they, they're not um, like feminine women or manly men? Well, again, I mean, being feminine is not about wearing um, you know, flowery patterns and, and, and makeup and that sort of thing. It's about this posture of receiving. So you look at saints like Joan of Arc, for example. Um, I feel like she gets twisted so often in society. And even though she was in what was ostensibly a man's role, particularly at the time, mm-hmm. she led an army in the way a mother would. So yeah. she did it in a distinctly feminine way. Um, even though that is classically um, a man's job, leading an army. You look at, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some other saints. You know, Zaley, St. Zaley and St. Louis Martin, Therese's parents, um, she had a lace-making business that actually made so much more money than her husband's, who was a watchmaker. And so she was, you know, kind of the breadwinner of the family for a period there. And he ended up giving up his watchmaking business to go into the lace making business with her. But if you read their letters and if you look at their life, she never did any of that in a domineering way. She was always still submissive um, to her husband. And that doesn't mean just, you know, being a doormat and letting him right. do whatever. It means being under his mission. So the uh, Martins were very clear about what their mission was. Their mission was to be, um, you know, daughter and son of God first, husband and wife second, and mother and father third. And so everything that they did in their watchmaking or lace making business was to serve the family. 
And, you know, as a result, they did this so well that every single one of their daughters is either canonized or up. <laughs> right. And they right. themselves became saints. So, and, or, you know, St. Gianna Beretta Mala, she was a working mom. Um, now she was a mother, wife and mother first, though. She's very clear about this. And, you know, there, she wasn't canonized because she was a working mom. She was canonized because of the decisions she made with respect to her family. Yep. the way she lived that out. And so, you know, it's just without having a specific example, I guess if somebody came up to me and talked to me about this, I'd say, okay, maybe you do like doing something that is typically a more masculine activity. Um, I don't know. What would that be? Cars? <laughs> like fixing sure, yeah, cars. Yeah. Okay, let's go with car mechanic. car mechanics. <laughs> That's fine. That's great. Um, Cars are gender neutral. <laughs> they, right. <laughs> you know, it, just do it in a way that serves your identity as a woman. Um, yeah. Be the gentling presence in that workplace. Fix the car for the glory of God. Like just there are ways to do it without getting so bogged down in these minute um, details. And it's going to look different for everybody and at different stages of your life. And so I think, you know, one of the things – I think we really struggle with as society as a whole is just this need for control. We want to know, Mm -hmm. we want to have black and white answers. It's so easy if you give me a bullet point list of, okay, these are the things that a traditional woman does. She does dishes. She does laundry. The man cuts the grass, does the garbage. Life would be so much easier if we could reduce it to this black and white um, bullet point list, but that's just not how life works. That's not how God works. He gave us, he gave us some very important things in black and white, you know, the 10 commandments, the dogmas of the church, the doctrines, but there's so much else that's left as a shade of gray. And to get to be comfortable with that means we have to increase in our trust. Um, and the, and that's, that's a lifelong process. You know, a lack of trust in God was the underlying reason for the first sin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this, the serpent came to Eve and quit, you know, he didn't outright deny anything. God said he got her to question. Is that really what God said? Does he really want to take care of you? Is, does he really want you to, um, you know, be of equal dignity, you know, cause if you eat this, you'll be like God always implying that somehow God wanted them to be something, um, lesser, or or lacking in some way. And so we have to just learn to grow in trust. We have to learn to move forward in faith um, without having all of the black and white answers laid out for us, but just knowing that it's a process and there's a place we can go for the answers in scripture and the, the teachings of the church. And there's a place for us to go to when we mess up. And that's, you know, the confessional. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, something that's been super powerful for me has just been examining, I'm not perfect by any means, far, far from it, but finding ways like, okay, was there a better way that I could have responded to my husband today or to my children's needs or to the person in, you know, traffic or at the grocery store? Was there a more Marian way? that I could have expressed that. What of her virtues was I lacking in my uh, day-to-day doings? And, you know, that will apply regardless of whether you're fixing a car or breastfeeding a baby. (laughs) That's so true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. So, so for the women listening today who, I mean, this is just so moving. So for people who want to start embracing more of their femininity that, or masculinity, if there's a man listening, um, that that God inherently gave to us, how can they start? Where should they start? What should they do? Okay. First thing to do is prayer. I know that sounds so trite, but um, we cannot do anything in this life if we are not engaging in daily intimate conversation. And I do mean conversation with God. Um, you know, not just reading your daily gospel passage in a hurried way, not in a way to gain information, but in a way that like this is the word of God speaking to me right now where I am. And then this prayerful pondering way. And so when you start making a habit of this daily mental prayer, 
other things start coming automatically more naturally. So that has to be the foundation. Now for like practical other things you can do, um, gosh, the writings of the church, read Edith Stein, um, read John Paul II, uh, read Theology of the Body. There's um, Theology of the Body for Beginners. That's a really great place to start. Read uh, church documents. There's amazing encyclicals written um, on marriage, on the family life. Um, there, If you're a man, the, the one that uh, Pope Francis wrote on St. Joseph last year, incredible for learning mm-hmm. what a man, um, what tr- authentic masculinity looks like. And so there's so many resources. If you just go through, um, you know, even Google, like encyclicals on marriage or femininity, those are the best places to start um, to understand better what church teaching looks like. That's awesome. That's so true. Um, yeah, the I didn't I didn't even think about the St. Joseph one that he just wrote, but you're right. That is such it's beautiful. It's beautiful it's so for men beautiful. if they want to read that. Yeah. That's awesome. Even for women just to read it and like, you yeah. know, it's it's awesome to understand, you know, it men is. as a woman and, and yeah, women think, as a man. I think as you understand your husband more too, or, you know, if you're not married, just men in general, you can better compliment somebody when you know what their strengths and weaknesses are. So Absolutely. if you understand what your role as woman at is and what the man's role is, then you can support him better and help him become the man um, not in a like domineering, controlling way, but just if he can't be the man that God created him to be, if you're not being the woman God created you to be. Um, Absolutely. It takes both. And, you know, speaking of the St. Joseph encyclical, any of the encyclicals on Mary would be amazing places um, or the saints writings on Mary would be, I mean, she is just the, the model synchronon for what woman mm-hmm. looks like. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Well, that was just such a fruitful conversation. And I learned so much more again, even though I've heard this like (laughs) twice now. Um, So for everybody listening, where can they find you? Where can they follow you to learn more? Um, um, I have a blog that has been a little bit neglected, but I'm hoping to write more. (laughs) It's at the contemplativehomemaker.com or you can find me on Instagram at the contemplative homemaker. Perfect. And I will link all of those in the show notes. Um, Thank you again, Lauren, so much for being here today. It was just such a fruitful conversation. And I know you've blessed so many lives. So thank you so much. Thank you, Marie. And everyone else, please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you enjoy the show. Now go embrace the woman God created you to be. Hey, ladies. I want to introduce you to one of my favorite small Catholic businesses. Loving Philomena is a small Catholic earring business on Etsy, which seeks to deepen devotion to Christ through the beauty of Catholicism. Specifically, Loving Philomena designs and produces polymer clay earrings inspired by different saints and titles of Mary. Find earrings inspired by Mother Teresa, Our Lady Star of the Sea, St. Kateri, and more. You can find Loving Philomena on Etsy to receive a daily reminder of the beauty of Catholicism. Click the link in our show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Catholic Woman Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort, and we look forward to catching you again in the next episode of the Catholic Woman Podcast.